0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding
1: exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. So I worked from home this morning because uh, in my downstairs, the carpet keeps getting wet. And we're pretty sure it's not the cat peeing. And so I had a plumber come out this morning to look at it. And the good news is you couldn't find a, pl- a plumbing problem. The bad news is that means that either there is a, pl- a plumbing problem, but we would have to tear open one of the walls to see it, and it's the septic system. Or even worse, it's a uh, problem in the foundation of the house and rainwater is seeping into the floors. You should consider moving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are moving soon. That's, that's the I know, part, that was a joke. Yeah. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I don't know what's worse, like having to have a uh, restoration company come like restore the house <laughs> or deal with the fact that that is shit water in my carpet. <laughs> just never go down there again. It's where my computer is. Well, you're just going to have to
0: move it then. Yeah, Just throw down some plywood over it and you're good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. Still weird.
0: Yeah. Um, Follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. A couple shows ago, we talked about how we both kind of thought that disable with should be default on Rails forms, and not one but two listeners opened up pull requests, and that's actually now going to happen in Rails 5. So big thanks to Justin, whose pull request ended up getting merged, and then John Moss, who also did some work on it, but was just a little bit later than Justin, we have like an army now, people yes. that can do our bidding. And
1: thank you also to the other, I think there were three of you who also submitted a pull request for this, but we're also too late, who we didn't mention. Oh,
0: Really? Wow, we have a whole army. Let's give some more work. Here's, here's one that I was talking about uh, earlier in the Ruby room. I think it was when you were out SEC the other day. It drives me crazy trying to explain to people, because it's just happened on the project I'm on right now, when you set up your routes and you say like resources posts, if you, don't re- if you don't restrict posts, right? So you just say mm-hmm. resources posts. And then you go into your controller and you're like, I don't know, I have a, I have a uh, post index here. And so you create an index method. And you're like, well, I only support index. If you if you have like a show template in your views directory for posts, right. guess what? You also support a show action. yep. Because you didn't restrict the routes. And the controller will magically just say, well, the action is missing. Is there a template here to render? And it'll just render the template. This drives me absolutely insane and trying to design I I understand the design is bad Yeah (laughs) It drives me absolutely insane because like what happens is it's a combination of two problems What happens is people are getting into rails and they're like, okay resourceful routing resources posts good got it And then they move on and they do their index and then they and maybe they use some scaffolding generators to generate some templates while they're at it or whatever and then somebody comes on to the project later and is trying to clean things up and can't figure out what the actual actions you're using are without first looking at the controller to see what actions are defined there and then also cross-referencing that with the templates that may exist in the views directory. But you don't really know if those templates are there and actually used or if those right. templates are there because they were scaffolded or they were, once, they were once used and then somebody deleted the action but forgot to delete the thing. So sure. it's a combination yeah. of like, resources allowing you to just get all of these actions for free and this automatic magic template handling thing the opinion seemed to be that like like when i was talking about this in the ruby room the opinion seemed to be that this is thoughtbots ruby room not like some giant rails or ruby room in the community but the opinion seemed to be
1: that rails should stop doing that can you can you think of a good reason that it does that um because the style that some people uh, (laughs) use is they have a before action which sets an instance variable and that would be the only setup in the entire method and they find having def index end even worse than having it just go and render the template. Okay.
0: No, we're not going to win that one. Uh, I don't like that style either, but (laughs) what about approaching this from the other way? And that is requiring a list of actions or requiring the only or accept options to resources
1: i think it might be a nice quality of life this would need to be a discussion that could be had on a pull request but i think it could be a nice quality of life improvement to emit a warning if you did not specify only or accept in your routes and you do not have seven actions on the controller
0: yeah wouldn't that drive the same people crazy only if they have seven uh, well no if If they have seven actions and some of them are routed, some of them are rendered directly without an action in the controller. So
1: that's what I'm saying, is if you have, like, a template existing counts as a valid action. Um, So if you have seven templates and you didn't specify only or except, the idea being that if you are relying on the implicit template rendering Mm -hmm. uh, and you aren't using all seven of them, you need to explicitly specify which ones exist in your routes. I think
0: it's rare that I actually... it's, It's certainly less frequent that I actually support all
1: seven of the magical resource routes in a given, yeah. in a given uh, resource. I think for most apps, um, show is rare. Like usually for whatever your app is built around, there'll be a show. So you'll have a post show or a product show or something like that. But then most of your kind of secondary Objects tend to not have show. They get shown as part of the parent object or something like that. Yeah, or like they only matter as an index or something. Or like admin
0: interfaces, I never bother building a show. I just take it yeah, and give you an edit with a form, right? Right.
1: <laughs> and even outside of admin interfaces, I think a lot of time uh that's the uh pattern these days too.
0: Right. Maybe you'll get like one of those dynamic, flickery type things where it's like a thing, and then you click into it, and then magically
1: it's a form, and then you're right. Editing. So then you don't even have an edit. Right. <laughs> just have index. Yeah. And a bunch of post requests. All right. Yeah, so I don't think we could win the battle of changing that. And even – I'm not sure w- what my personal opinion on that would be. Even if I was positive that I agreed, though, I still wouldn't accept the change that completely removed that behavior because it's a breaking change yeah. for stylistic uh, right. reasons. Mm, it's not
0: – I don't think it's style. I think I, – I work on a lot of apps where this is a problem, where people don't restrict the resources and then – like. And maybe it's maybe it's I'm more sensitive to it because the routes are where I go when I'm on a new when I when I join a new project I look at the routes first before I even look at any code or the size of the project or anything I'm like what are we exposing and if all I see is the wrong word if all I see is resources then I'm like okay I'm in for a lot of work to trace down what (laughs) what this app actually does and unfortunately I, I feel like that's most apps. Um, don't I mean, properly mean, I, I guess
1: the other thing we could do is we could modify rake routes to only show routes that actually exist, like that actually would give something other than a 500 if you hit them.
0: Or like rake routes routable or something,
1: <laughs> like things that could actually be routed. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I, it would definitely make sense in all of our other forms because I actually... Personally, don't go to the routes file when I first start a project. I spin up the server and go to slash wibble so that I get the nice formatted table. Slash what now? I think whatever doesn't exist. Oh, anything that would give a routing error because no. then we'll render that nice table. Slash rails. Slash rails. Slash info. Right. That, it, that, uh, there's probably an actual page. I just yeah, force I think a is. routing error to occur and then yeah. go. Look it. But <laughs> the point being that that table, it would be, it would make sense to have that table filter out. Routes that don't have an actual controller action backing them and only exist in the routes table because um, because resources because resources wasn't wasn't specified, and in fact, I would even be curious if we could improve performance of the router by removing those from the routes table at boot time you also but the other thing is it's it's a little bit
0: tricky to do it that way because if you have non seven routes templates so let's say you have uh i don't know a favorite template right mm-hmm. so you have posts favorite and it's not it's not a partial it's an actual template if you didn't restrict your routes for posts and you just did resources posts right and so now i've got to inspect those templates so is favorite a route i don't know it could be it's yes. routable
1: we but- do we, we, we do know for sure that that's a route. That one's not the problem, actually. The problem is the old Rails 2.3 th- two, controller action-style routing, where the action is actually variable based on the URL, which right. we're hoping to kill eventually.
0: <laughs> Rails 8.
1: No, it's <laughs> one of those just, you know, it might be a non-straightforward migration to anybody who has legacy code using it. We can solve so many problems if we kill it. We can solve the singular resource past to form for problem Um, we can improve the performance of the router dramatically. There's a lot of benefits if we get rid of it, and nobody uses it in new code. I don't even think we document it anymore, but there's a lot of legacy code out there that is still using it. And I would guess, if if I had to just pull an arbitrary number out of my ass, like 50% of them are pretty mechanical. um, Translations? Search and replace, yeah. Uh, And then the other 50% are either non-straightforward to move to the system today or are um maybe even there's a case that's not possible i'm not i'm not sure
0: yeah i mean i'm sure there is a case that's not possible but at that point you can always write middleware
1: yes that's true
0: so that's what i think like yeah. you just put a middle you put middleware that hit gets hit before the router gets hit and then you can do whatever the hell you want yeah, or at, or you do, or you make it your failure app, right? So like nothing has been routed, and you use your failure app to do this extra routing that you want based on the URL, and you dispatch to your controller that way because your controller is just a rack app.
1: That sounds like such an abusive failure app.
0: <laughs> well, then you introduce some other thing like fallback app or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's this is one of the larger ones. If anybody wants to uh, <laughs> take a swing at this, where it's like I think we're all in agreement that we want to get rid of this, and we just haven't seen a proposal of how to do it that we think is tenable yet. I'm not saying go open a pull request for this because it's a lot of work, but maybe you could open a thread on the Rails core mailing list, and if you have a concrete proposal, open a new thread with your concrete proposal of how to go about doing it.
0: Yeah. Circling back to the original one, the disable with. Oh, yes. So I'm excited to see that in. However, if you're looking for extra credit... (laughs) You could also enable disable with on link to with an action. So, like, you can use link to with an action of post, and you would still want to disable with on that link. I mean method? Method, sorry. Because that's yes. essentially a button. You should be using a button, but you're not, and I've seen that quite often. So
1: Is disable consi- with even an op- option on yeah. links? Yeah, I don't know if it's documented. I've definitely done it before. Because, like, oh, yeah, I guess you can do disable true on a link in HTML, can't you? Yeah. Huh, yeah. Definitely not for gets, though.
0: No, no, because you shouldn't be doing anything that's not idempotent on a get anyway or anything that's even going to modify anything.
1: Theoretically, you shouldn't be doing anything that isn't idempotent on any uh, action other than post because put and delete are supposed to be idempotent as well. Right, right.
0: Anyway, so look into that. Do that pull request. Let's take a quick break. Tell you about our sponsor for today's episode. It's Media Temple. Media Temple's been around for years. I feel like I first used them in the early two thousands, and they're still around. They're still a premium platform for designers, developers, and creative professionals. When you're a Media Temple customer, you're on their grid. So your grid account can host whatever you want: your portfolio site, all your client projects, whatever you've got. And it's going to stand up to a beating too. So if you're on the front page of Reddit or Daring Fireball, no sweat. Media Temple has shared hosting across hundreds of servers, and those servers intelligently handle noisy neighbors and traffic spikes, so you won't be impacted if somebody on, on your same cluster that's hitting the front page of Reddit. Uh, if you just want to get up and running quickly, there's fantastic one click installs for things like Drupal and WordPress and all the usual things. Their control panel is very easy to use, very nice to look at. And uh, just quickly, too, I want to touch on support. I've got friends hosting client sites with Media Temple, and they each say that the support is fantastic. If you've got an urgent question at 10 o'clock on a Saturday, you can talk to a human who is happy to help. There's a special discount also for Bike Shed listeners. If you use the promo code BIKE25, you can get a 25% off discount for hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter your promo code upon sign-up. Thanks again to Media Temple for sponsoring the show. So this week I've been helping out on this. I, ju- I just came onto this project for a very brief stint of uh, one week, and it's this project that is an API for a iOS app. And it also has an admin interface served in the same app, and it also has some... Uh, web scrapers that are sidekick background jobs for scraping things off a web page and putting them into the database okay. so it does a, it does have a lot of things and the api is up around 1200 requests per minute or something like that so it's pretty well used and um what i was told about the project is that it was a performance problem and i was like oh i just came off a performance project i'll just use those same skills again and then i got there and it was actually like no not necessarily not really the performance problem i was thinking about it's the performance problem of uh hey we have to keep rebooting the app because it takes up over seven gigs of memory when it's running. (laughs) So my first thought initially was like, okay, I bet it's those background jobs, but nope, they've already got those running on a different server. I'm like, okay. And then those do take up a lot of memory, but I'm not worried about it right now. And then I was like, well, okay, there's got to be a memory leak because I'm looking at new relic and it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and it must be a leak. So I tried Richard Schneeman's derailed benchmarks And locally, with a much smaller database than they run in production, because it was kind of impractical for me to get the production database, um, I started to see memory use settle out when I was hitting requests. So I was like, well, that doesn't look like a memory leak. This just looks like it's active record bloat. Or just object bloat, maybe not necessarily active record <laughs> to spoil right. the story. So, one of the things we ended up doing as well, like to try and narrow it down, was like, well, let's set up a server that runs the admin interface and let's set up another server that runs the API. And we'll use CloudFront to split between them, right? So, the only mm-hmm. ad- admin requests will go to one server, API will go to another server. And then maybe that will tell us, you know, which one's worse. And uh, they're both pretty bad. And then, <laughs> and then I just, I, like, I was looking for things that might actually be leaking memory. A while ago, New Relic had a memory leak problem, so I was like, well, they're running New Relic. Is it that version? Nope, not that. And finding memory leaks is not something I do a lot in Ruby code. So I'm looking around for things that, like, maybe we're holding on to a reference somewhere in a class variable or something, and nothing is, like, nothing is jumping out at me. And I just started digging into some of the code, and it... we and ran persist
1: across requests?
0: Yes, yes. Like okay, it so get... that
1: rules out the first option, because the first thing I usually ask when people are tracking them... Memory leaks with Active Record is: Are you doing a ton of work in a giant transaction block? Oh, interesting. Because we actually keep a strong reference to all ob- uh, to all Active Record objects that are persisted in any way inside of a transaction. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's possible but that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a memory leak that goes across requests.
0: Right. So what we're well, what we're seeing is just what I think we're seeing is just memory bloat, because I started looking into things and like it's one of those apps where everything is done with active record? Yep. Like active record is a row store and then or the database is a row store and you pull everything out with active record and then using ruby you munge it all together and you do lots uh. of things. Right? So that's a lot of what I'm seeing. Similar problem to the last project I was working on where a lot of like scope access from views and then you do other things inside there, uh stuff like that. So I was really hoping that, you know, I'm only working on this for 4 days, so I was hoping I'd be like here's a memory leak, boom, you're down to Two gigabytes, right?
1: Well, that's the thing, though. Like, the numbers you're throwing out there... Are so huge, right? Yeah, I don't... Especially, right, because if it was just memory bloat... Because you can definitely get that, right? Because Ruby's memory usage will always be equal to your peak memory usage of your app. Because it will never free memory back up to the operating system. Right,
0: that was another thing I had to struggle to explain. Like, I was like, oh, no, no, garbage collection will free it to Ruby. (laughs) Right. But not back to your operating system.
1: And And you're just running a single instance of your server, right? Um, per machine? Well,
0: no. So it's running Passenger, and Passenger is running, like, four processes, I think.
1: Okay, so you're seeing, like, two gigs per process then. Yeah. Which is still a lot, but is more achievable, especially if you're just loading your entire database.
0: Now that I think about it, I think the server that we ended up splitting the API onto is actually running 25 processes. So so it running into four, five, six gigabyte territory is not unreasonable.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean...
0: So maybe we need to be looking at the. So we probably need to be more closely looking at the twelve hundred requests per minute API.
1: Um, yeah, because like on Heroku, right, for your quote unquote average Rails app on their five twelve meg dynos, they recommend usually two two or three uh, think, processes. Yep. yep. And I am going to say that if you guys are loading your entire database into memory pretty much on every request, you are probably going to want to cut that in half or even a third. So, like, expect each process to take half a gig to three quarters of a gig almost. Yeah. yeah if it, I mean, if you do think it's a memory leak in that you aren't ever seeing the usage taper off because if it's memory bloat, you should see it spike up pretty fast and then level out. Um, and no, if it's it, just kinda, to...
0: it just kind of continues slowly. It does level up pretty quick and then it just slowly grows and grows and grows and grows. I don't know if they had to restart. It definitely sounds like a leak then. Yeah, but I haven't been able to reproduce like a leak-like behavior locally. So that's why I'm like, I don't I don't know. Like I've thrown I've thrown like five thousand ten thousand requests at this thing and not see and it just it levels out. And you're
1: running the app in production mode locally. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, are you are you guys using Execute anywhere? Probably not. Because that's one of the other ones that um, is a is a common mistake. Is Execute can leak memory if you're using it to return uh, records. You either need to call I don't remember if it's free or release one of those two methods on the object when you're done with it. Or you need to call the method execute and free, which is a block which takes a block and automatically releases it at the end of it. Because the, at least for Postgres, the C extension might not auto release the C query result when the object goes away.
0: Hmm. Execute and release, execute and free.
1: Is that what you said? I believe that's the name of the method. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Interesting. It's internal. Technically, execute also internal, and most hmm. of the time when people call execute, they actually meant find by SQL. Hmm. If they're creating active record objects out of the results, anyway. Right. But yeah, that's one potential thing. Uh, I actually had a memory leak in active record a little while back. That came from me calling execute directly, and uh, on most apps, it was a small enough set of data that it was not noticeable. But it actually turned out to be a thing that, if your schema was set up just so, then it could end up being gigs, well. and we would never free it. <laughs> And it just happened to app boot. It was when we were loading up the types, basically. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a look. We just split the apps out. We split the admin and the API out like uh, yesterday or this morning, early, early this morning. So I'll take a look. I took a look earlier, and each app was using about half as much as it had been using before. I was really hoping to see one that was using a lot less and another that was using more so I could be like, okay, Mm -hmm. that cuts off half of what I need to look at because... Frankly, like the problems I were seeing were all over. So I was, I, I, I've just been kind of like because it's a short project, I've just been kind of like floating around and being like, this looks like low hanging fruit. Clean this up. This looks like low hanging fruit, and then trying to like impart as much like best practice, active record stuff because the developers working on it are good developers, but they're not um, Rails developers. So, have you tried bumping to uh, four two? I have not tried that. Do you think that would be yes? Really?
1: Maybe. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Why do you think? Why do you just because it's latest and
1: <laughs> yeah, and like there's a lot of stuff that was just fixed in four two that wasn't like explicitly this bug was fixed in a change log anywhere because certain refactorings made certain classes of bugs hard or impossible. Yeah, like in my mind, just knowing the internals of the code base and knowing all of the little subtle things that weren't ever explicitly called out in a change log but were fixed in four two, like in my mind, active record before four two is kind of completely broken everywhere
0: all right well then i will do that as soon as we get off this call i the the problem is um ordinarily that would be like one of the first things i did but this test this had no tests when i started and so yeah that's not a good idea then (laughs) we're up to like 20 tests um but with no tests that's another thing i've kind of been trying to show is like here's how you would go about refactoring this stuff start with a test right then refactor then move the test to the new class that you pulled out or whatever the case may be um, do, do they have a QA department or anything like that? <laughs> no they have a staging server and they can run the app against the,
1: the iOS app against the staging server yeah, but not enough to exhaustively
0: no and th- this being my last day I mean I might maybe I'll open a pull request and be like, here's the app and it runs on four two and my test pass and I tried some things in the browser and they return JSON uh,
1: <laughs> this yeah, might that's... help you it might not. That's really weird if you can't if you can't reproduce it. Well, I, I mean, it, I guess it does sound like you just got if you worked with a smaller dataset, you got a pretty much proportionally smaller memory usage. Does yeah, that that's sound about correct. That's also probably prob, like if if I were going to be on this project longer, I'd be like, no, give me the fifteen
0: gigs. Like, let's find a way <laughs> to get this to me uh, without taking down the production server. Right. Um, but, yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway. <sighs> but it's also like like i said they're not rails developers so w- one of the things they were really curious about is like should we rewrite this is this so bad that you know we need to rewrite it and i looked at it and i was like no this is like the project i just came off of the the advice was like we're gonna do some in performance improvements here but you need to rewrite this and that's the first time i've ever actually had to give that advice to somebody for real i've been on the borderline a couple times Right. But um that was the first time I had to be like, yeah. And then we're coming into this one. I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to give that advice. And I looked at it, and it, it's not like it's a pretty simple Rails app. It's just you know you could chip away at it, action by action, model move by more model. More logic into SQL. More, more, move more logic into SQL. Move, pull out more classes, like because there's various models that just just start issuing active record queries on other models for some reason in the middle of requests and. You know, it's hard to it's hard to follow like I would I would be looking at the rack mini profile or output for an action I'd be like, okay I'm issuing two queries here in the controller and oh, yeah There's probably gonna be a handful of queries issued here from the view and then I'd be like 135 queries (laughs) What's happening and then I'd look and I'd be like oh this it called this seemingly this thing that I assumed was actually just a property of the model (laughs) Is a method that's going to like loop over a bunch of stuff and issue a bunch of queries So it's all stuff that needs to be fixed. Anyway, I don't know that it's gonna make a dent memory wise So I'm just kind of like doing as much as I can and trying to instruct as much as I can and then you know I gave the advice that from my perspective. No, this isn't an app that needs to be rewritten but if you're gonna be like significantly more comfortable in Python or whatever language you know, you're comfortable with and deployment environments you're comfortable with, then maybe it makes sense. But from a professional Ruby developer's perspective, that's you know, the quality of the code is not a reason to ditch it altogether, even though sure. it's taking up seven gigabytes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it might just need to go down to one process per machine. It
0: would certainly be, well, one process per machine would start to impact. I mean, they're serving 1,200 requests per minute. Or fewer than 25, I mean well i wouldn't
1: i wouldn't expect 25 to use a reasonable amount of memory. yeah the
0: 20 the 25 was actually that's that's another one of the problems is like they're running their own hardware on ec2 but i don't think any of them are devops people and i'm not DevOps. i'm not a devops person either so it's like there are slight differences in configuration between these two servers and different versions of things between these two servers and um so they're really interested in getting onto heroku but i was like you just we can't do that right now (laughs) like (laughs) not at the memory you're using would cost a fortune heroku does have like hey contact us and we'll set up a server for you but uh, i think it's an absolute fortune
1: yeah no and it, it's yeah i mean ultimately if they went to heroku they'd be down they'd be one process per dyno for sure
0: yeah if they could fit it on a 2x dino
1: <laughs> 2x maybe, dyno, will maybe give you a gig they could do two or three on a 2x dyno. you think so maybe i don't know i mean, if 25 7 gigs right That's be another I thing think. it's tough when these projects are
0: only a week long you know because like yeah one of the things on day two i was like oh I really wouldn't mind just pushing this up to Heroku and have an environment where I can totally limit things and, be, and like be more comfortable and I know I'm controlling for all the things that I'm familiar with and turn it down to one process and things like that and see what see what happens. But right. yeah, I'll give that advice as well. Let's crank down the processes. And then the other advice that I mentioned because they kept having to actually manually restart was like setting the passenger uh, memory limit that will, it's kind of like the unicorn worker killer thing right. that like monitors the in-use memory once it gets over a certain limit routes no more requests to it waits till the request finish and then kill off the process and start again
1: well and that that might be that might be a good thing then because uh, well okay so here's one uh, another thing though they shouldn't ever see a significant performance boost from having a number of processes serving requests greater than the number of cores on the machine Mm, or, at the very point. least, they would see some severely diminishing returns. You might still see a little bit of a boost, but it'll it 'll you know taper off pretty quickly right and that 's one thing that that happens on Heroku a good bit is that people try and increase the number of workers that they have um, and then what ends up happening is they end up swapping because uh, mm. they 're out of memory and they end up actually swapping to disk, which completely brings everything to a halt. Mm-hmm. And so the number of requests they can serve concurrently goes way down. And, they, and so sometimes on Heroku, at least, you see people see humongous performance benefits by actually setting the number of workers down to one. Hmm. All right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, you know, these are
0: just... These are things that I think are worth trying in their situation. So, you yeah. know, going down to at least f- at most four on that other server and eight. seeing uh, eight. Yeah,
1: because... Um, Do you think it's quad core with... Quad core with hyper threading. Right
0: but i think 4 is i mean 4 is what the production server was running before right so it'd oh. be good so to go apples to apples with the api running 4 and the and the admin running 4 right and then right. you can kind of check your memory use at that point um i had early on i had kind of eliminated the the admin as like a suspect cuz i was like how often do admins get used they can't be a big like i would expect to see giant spikes and then not but i guess their admin is actually pretty heavily used mm. so um that was a, a bad assumption on my part yeah I don't
1: know. ORMs, I, man. I, I, was hope, I was hoping this was going to be a thing where it's just like, oh, you just need to do X. Yeah, you and me both, Sean. <laughs> but, yeah, it does just sound like it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because Ruby, I mean, Ruby is definitely not known for being low memory footprint.
0: Or like, And the other questions that are like valid questions when you're in the situation was like, uh, well, what is a lot of objects to be created? And I was like, um... I don't know <laughs> it's like i was like honestly i don't i don't have these problems like on apps that i usually work on um usually they fit well inside a 1x dyno with a couple of processes um sometimes we go 2x dynos and usually just one of them and that's partially because we work on a lot of like early stage projects but also because i don't know maybe the way we write things we have come to know things that we should and shouldn't be doing Maybe I, I would I,
1: I would say the way that we write things tends to create more short lived objects, but the number of short lived objects that you can create in app code are generally not significant.
0: Right. We we might create more objects, but we're not like we don't do a lot of unnecessarily pulling things into Ruby and processing them in Ruby. Like we try to right. let the database do as much and work as we possibly exception. can. Right. Because active
1: record objects tend to be large. Right. Like even not even necessarily because of the way active record is implemented. Definitely, part of it's because of the way Active Record was in, is implemented, but also because uh, it's just a lot of stuff. Yeah, so you're um, gonna fix it all, though. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's actually funny. Like, if we could eliminate dirty checking, we could save a lot of memory usage on most apps. And dirty checking is a feature that I think most apps don't even use. I guess the only I, I
0: don't explicitly use dirty checking very often. I have right. Um... I mean, everybody implicitly
1: uses it. Right, with when the, you call save the, and it right. doesn't do anything because you didn't change anything. Or it only saves the fields that changed. But, like, right. for most apps, does that even matter? I mean, it, it kind of sort of maybe eliminates certain race conditions if they're only ever trying to modify different fields. But I, I feel like that's a really limited use case. I guess if you were doing serialization or something,
0: right? If you, if you had to constantly serialize... Data back that you weren't, you didn't actually change for a write.
1: Well, and that's one of the big things where uh, serialized fields now detecting mutation was was a big uh, was a big gain. Oh, that's right. We talked about the dirty checking with the serialized fields. That's right. Right. And (laughs) but that's the thing, right? So that's an edge case that doesn't apply to the majority of Rails apps. Where yes, then this then dirty checking is a benefit. Right. But it has a CPU cost. But it has a huge memory cost. It 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 basically doubles your the size of. of all active record objects, sometimes more than doubles. Because you have to keep each attribute a copy of the before and after attribute. Is that? Yeah, and specifically, we also have to keep around the before typecast version of it, which, depending on the type of the field, might be larger, might be smaller. Like if it's a integer, and the inter- and the string is five digits long, then that is larger than a thirty-two bit integer. Hmm. Right. Of course, if it's four or less digits long, well, it'll still actually be larger. Uh, it'll always be larger, actually, because a a string is represented as a, a heap-allocated array of bytes, and then a thirty-two bit or sixty-four bit unsized integer, depending on your platform, that represents the size, the length of the string. So, the string will always be larger than in, than the integer it represents in Ruby, actually. Right. Anyway, my point being, like, of course, integers, you're not going to necessarily be getting enough of those, but but like, yeah, we have to keep two copies of all data around.
0: Yeah. That must get expensive in, like, cases of, like, blobs,
1: like, file attachments and whatever. Right? All right. And, th- and then just use select. If you t- like, if you don't expect that to change all the time and you don't want it to, like, don't select the field. Nobody uses select. I know nobody <laughs> uses select, but th- you would get better performance and you would have right. lower hardware costs. I did, if you I, did have to,
0: I did sneak in some selects in this project, but that was m- explicitly because they were calling pluck. And I was like, well, if you're going to call pluck, you might as well call select first
1: pluck call select for you. Uh not in one. Does it? It should. The the whole point of pluck is to skip the intermediate uh active record objects and skip the hash creation.
0: Well, then maybe I need to go undo some things. Hang on. I'm rolling I'm I'm booting up a rails console right here. This is thrilling podcast right here. <laughs> <laughs> Live coding on a podcast where nobody can see you. Well, you can't call so here it's going to be hard cuz I can't call just do Pluck id. Yeah. That's what I did. Uh item.all, pluck ID. Select No, select items.star.
1: Do you have a default scope?
0: Nope. Select items. Oh no, select items.id. Sorry. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Well, that was silly. I think I was thrown off because you can't
1: call to SQL on Pluck. Yes, that is correct. Because it does not create a relation object. It so that's why
0: I it. that's why I did it, because I was like I was in the console and I was like, does Pluck do this? And I went pluck ID to SQL and I was like, oh nope it turned it into an array and then so I did select to SQL, and I was like yeah that's what I want and then I tucked the pluck <laughs> on top of there
1: yeah no that's why but that's why we, we select for you and pluck because exactly like you just said there's no use case where you're calling pluck and you didn't want to select specifically those fields yes. unless you were doing something crazy with like an order clause in which case you can't use pluck sorry <laughs> right just call map yeah well uh, yeah. call select and then map but uh, yeah. Speaking of performance and memory, usage, did you see Matt's tweet today? I did. I haven't had time to really think about it, but the tweet was
0: basically that um, Rails three all string literals are going to be immutable by default.
1: Or Rails three, uh, Ruby three, frozen. Yeah, all right. Uh, which, based on the discussion, it might actually just end up being that the magic that the magic comment that's been proposed multiple times just ends up getting accepted. Because that does cause a... What's the the magic comment? I know I I recall this vaguely, but I can't remember. In in Ruby 1.9, you were able to put a magic comment at the top of your file that changed the default encoding of string literals, and um, it's been proposed several times to add an additional magic comment that you could put at the top of a file that says treat all string literals as uh, frozen. It's been
0: proposed. That has been proposed. Is that what you're saying? And rejected both for
1: 2.2 and 2.3. So
0: the idea is maybe... 3.0 3.0 that becomes a default and the comment you put at the top is for the opposite
1: so the issue with it being the default and this is where the conversation it's all in that twitter thread actually where you can see a lot of it is that um, not all gems actually have maintainers anymore right. and the breakage from changing the default for this would be really subtle on the bright side you would get a, an error message and not just do the wrong thing mm-hmm. or an exception rather but uh, it could cause a lot of migration pain. So um, it might end up just being that there is an opt-in comment that you put to make all string literals default. And I would hopefully like to see something at the gem level where you can do that because, for example, we would definitely just want that on everything all of the time.
0: Yeah, I was going to say maybe something in the gem spec where you opt into it or something.
1: Yeah, but it's
0: exciting. What What does that get you, right? So you can't mutate the string anymore and you can share, will that, will that automatically start, like if I have the string hello in one, in one place and the string hello
1: in another place, those will have the same object ID? Yes, and that already happens if you do hello.freeze right. multiple times. Right. That already happens as of Ruby 2.2. Right. Um, or I think even 2.1. Yeah, it's 2.1. And so, yeah, that, this would just mean that now all string literals can be automatically shared. And, you know, what we used to have to do prior to Ruby 2.1 is we'd have to stick things that we wanted to share up in a constant. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing is, constants aren't actually constants in Ruby. Right, you still uh, have to call freeze on them. <laughs> well, you can still have to call freeze on them, but even then, like a constant is not actually constant, so the compiler cannot actually inline it uh, mm. because the value of it can change. And so it actually still has to do a hash lookup every time you access the constant. Interesting. Because a constant is basically just an instance variable that's way harder to set.
0: So if this takes place, and in, then in Ruby three, the idea of extracting a constant to the top of your file, like I just did this for a bunch of times, because they were using strings in a loop, and I was like, ah, oh, just extract some constants here. So like new, right? The the string new, I extracted a new constant, and then I called a in constant inside that loop. Right. So, so that would Ruby... be as of Ruby three, I would just use the string new, not have to do the lookup for the constant.
1: Well, as of two one, you could just do new dot freeze, and that's actually going to be faster than using the constant. Okay, because you skip the hash lookup. For, uh, but then for you,
0: the you I mean, not having the constant in either case, like in in our new brave brave new Ruby 3.0 land, or in our two point two land, and, or whatever. And you just
1: put the string literal right. new, and it's already frozen. Although you might have to put a magic comment at the top of your file, and that's undecided. But then the problem
0: is that still doesn't help duplication. Anywhere you want to
1: use the string
0: new, you have to put the string new and you can 't change that to something else later without you know the, the nice part of a constant is if I want to change it, I change the actual string that it 's defined as it 's a symbol it 's a symbol to you know
1: this is, th- th- while that argument is true, and specifically this is an argument that you see a lot in java um, but my argument is if your constant is specifically the same as the string but it's not always right that was an example that i gave right no like, but that's the usual case like almost all of the times that this argument's being i i i get i definitely agree when it's not the case where it's like root you are you know base url or, or something even like an that. array
0: right an array of acceptable values for a thing sure right so you all make that a constant and now you want to add a new acceptable value to them
1: but the majority of the times I've seen this argument made, it's where the constant has exactly the same name as the string. Right. And it's in a case where if you ever changed the value of that constant to something else, I would find that very confusing as a consumer <laughs> of the code. Right.
0: right. I agree. But that, so, so my example was trivial, but there are definitely other – like the, the array example I think is good. Like So you wouldn't just want to do um, – if you had an array of, like I don't know, states for a post. You have like published and draft. Uh, let's say you start out with those two everywhere you wanted to check that the state was in one of those things or whatever you wanted the array of acceptable posts you wouldn't want to have to do like you know the string published dot freeze and then the followed by the string right
1: draft dot freeze you'd want to have a constant for that no i I agree with you on that it's more just the, the the string with the constant with the exact like uh in android for example when you're querying against the the user's contacts, ultimately, you end up going through this interface which abstracts away a SQL query. But it's ultimately, I believe, just querying a SQL table internally anyway. And you're supposed to use, like, the constant first name column, the value of which is the string first name. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, would that, why would that change? If that ever does change, that is very confusing to me as a consumer of your code. <laughs> right. Like, don't change that. Have the, <laughs> Don't put the first name in something other than the column first name. <laughs> Anyway, it, it'll be cool though. Uh, I, I do still like the proposal of basically having frozen strings and symbols be exactly the yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's what I want.
0: I don't want, I want much st-
1: more backwards incompatible change. I
0: want to stop having to explain the difference between a symbol and a string, and stop having to think about whether or not I want to use a symbol or a string. Because I do think about it, even though like it doesn't, it doesn't rise to my full level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely thinking about it when I'm doing something. Or I'm thinking about whether or not a straight like is this a hash of is this a hash of strings? String keys? Or is it symbol keys? What what is this? Is it in different access and we can get rid of indef in different access and we can get rid of symbolized keys? Oh yeah. That'd be great. Uh you don't realize if you are a Ruby programmer and you're sitting there and you're like, What's the big deal? I can guarantee you you just don't realize how often you're thinking about it. Yeah.
1: Well and then yeah. Ruby two two, the One nine hash syntax has been updated to allow quoted keys, right? Um, But it's super confusing because it looks now like exactly like JSON, which is always string keyed, but it's still symbols. Hmm. Yeah. Like I, I I like that we have that because otherwise, you know, what you'd be doing is uh, colon double quote value of the symbol double quote hash rocket, and so this removes the ability, the need to switch back and forth between. Uh, JSON syntax and hash rocket syntax, but still, I think it's just funny that we have like quoted that, which looks like strings, but it's still symbol keys. I feel I also
0: feel like the hash rocket getting rid of the hash rocket, the one nine hash syntax was a mistake in hindsight. And it's I definitely think, less flexible. And it's and it's also just now it's been overridden by things that are hash like, but aren't like you've got required keyword arguments, right? You use <laughs> you use something that looks like one nine hash syntax, but it doesn't map to anything. And that's something different than well, when you're using one. Nine. It
1: used to be mapped to a hash, though. Like that was the whole awesome thing about keyword arguments was right. that. But it...
0: then they were like, "We want required ones, obviously." Like that was like when keyword arguments came out. I was like, "Oh, but I can't have one be required." And then they were like, oh, Two right. two. You can have one be required, and you just leave off the value."
1: Which, yeah, okay, then, yeah. that syntax looks weird when you're declaring it. Yeah, colon, comma. And then you have to think
0: it's another thing. You have to be like, oh, wait, you wanted to name it that? Well, you can't do that. You have to Now you have to go back to using the hash rocket, whereas if you could just, like, the hash rocket was annoying to type, and it was more characters, but it was uniformly applicable, which is why even when I came here, I was typing hash rockets
1: constantly because I was like, I just like that I can use it everywhere, and I don't have to think about it. Well, so here's the argument for the one nine, for the one nine hash syntax. Okay. You no longer have to think about whether you want symbol or string keys.
0: Because you always want symbol keys. you always symbol keys.
1: Because they're easier to type. Well, no, <laughs> because they're the only thing that's supported in the nine hash syntax. You cannot have keys that are not anything other than symbols.
0: Well, you could still have one and then use your hash rocket, right? So like...
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're only oh, using right. the nine right. hash syntax. Right. I'm just being pedantic. Yeah, yeah, I'm being being pedantic.
0: We're we're bike shedding here. It's okay. We're bike bike (laughs) shedding ashes.
1: You know, one thing about mutable strings I found interesting. So a lot of people come to Rust and think that it's really weird that we have three string types, which it is kind of really weird. What are the three string types? So one is called string. Mm -hmm. One is called C string. Okay. And one is called str. Right. So um, a string is exactly like a string in other languages which have actual strings and not like C, basically, uh, where it is always heap allocated and it's growable. It's basically – so stir and string are the two that you'll actually use. And string is the, is the equivalent of a vector, basically, where it's a collection that is growable and ultimately – and it's always going to be heap allocated – and, has, and therefore, uh, because it's growable, has to keep a reference to the size. And in the case of a vector, also the capacity. I believe string does it as well. I believe strings actually just a vector of U8, uh, unsigned bytes, under the hood. And then str is to string what slice is to vector. So a slice can be stack allocated. And it's basically it's a, it's, it's a fixed-sized array. Right. Uh, and because it's fixed size and it can't grow, you can put that memory wherever you want. But uh, the size has to be known at compile time otherwise you can actually get well, you can get a dynamically sized one out of a vector but it's going to be heap allocated in that case and it's going to be in a box so stir is the same, is the same thing for string it, it's a fixed sized slice of characters and therefore can be on the stack or in some cases can be nowhere like a string literal is nowhere it's cuz it's it's actually going to be a pointer to your uh your program's binary in memory right and so it's really easy to get a string. You just call two string out of it or on it or uh into owned because the idea of like there's a non-owned thing, because you can only ever borrow strings and you can only ever borrow slices. Can you own slices? You might actually you can own slices, but you can only borrow string uh stirs. And there's a generic for other types that have like here's the borrowed representation and here's the owned representation. They abstracted that so you can like abstract over. Anything that can be turned into an owned string or owned whatever. Uh, Anyway, um, but one interesting thing is because in Rust all strings are UTF-8 and str is fixed length, it must be immutable. Right. Because a character is varying width. Right. So I just, I I, I found that really interesting and cool. (laughs) Everything I hear about, I I love everything I hear about Rust.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should have told these people on Monday... That if they wanted a really performant API, they <laughs> should <just> rewrite it. <laughs> they should Rust. let me rewrite it in Rust. And then I could have like, just been miserable for four days as I tried <laughs>
1: to learn Rust. Tried to, tried, to, tried to learn Rust while also making a JSON API in a language that and had, a, I, We actually do have a, a, a Sinatra-esque framework now. Okay. And a really good JSON serialization story. So you could do a JSON API in Rust pretty easily now
0: except i'd be missing the orm which we don't have time to get into you wanted to talk about rust orms but oh, yeah we're 54 you know, minutes it. All All right. Right. next
1: week well next week um <laughs> yeah so that'll be a, a a thing show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 30 as always ratings and reviews on itunes are much appreciated bike, it, tunes. <laughs> bike shed tunes This should be a if thing if you want
0: to give us if you want to give us feedback on this episode or any other episode you can tweet us at underscore bike shed email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website Thanks for listening
1: to Bike Shed and we'll see you next time. Yeah. Also make bike shed tunes a thing.
0: <laughs> bike shed army.
1: Out.